Good morning, everyone. Merry Christmas. Doesn't the whole church, doesn't this, all this look fantastic? So thank you for all the hands. Thank you. Yes. Jamie, Rachel, the team, everyone who did this, thank you guys very much. Uh, this, this week, we reached out to the family shelter to discuss uh, a, part, a support project somewhere between January and May. And, uh, at, but in that initial conversation, we found out that they're currently very much in need of non-perishable food items. So we were able to kind of pull that together uh, this week. And so we've got donation boxes, I think, in all the First National Bank lobbies, but there's also one right outside the door. And we will have those boxes available through December 24th. So if, if, uh, if you didn't see the email this week, but you've seen the box and, and this kind of jogs your memory, uh, if you could either purchase or rid your uh, cabinets of some non-perishable food items and bring them up there, and then the week between Christmas and New Year, we will make sure that gets delivered to the uh, family shelter, please. Okay, turn to Isaiah. Number two in our Advent 2023 messages this morning, I want to talk a little bit about hope and talk about the nature of the kingdom of God and therefore what that means for the nature that's extended for us that we can carry with us in our own hearts because we are very much citizens of the kingdom of God and we're seeking to align ourselves with the rhythm of the kingdom so that we can be an extension of that kingdom uh, everywhere we go and at every place and at every time, both in our homes and in our community. So this is a, a famous messianic, messianic uh, passage from the book of Isaiah. Uh, if you haven't already, you may even sing it during this season, uh, or you'll, you will have heard it sung uh, at some point during this season. We're familiar with it, but I want us to take a moment and to ground our meditation on this passage and Isaiah, and then... Look at the way the rest of Scripture kind of develops and confirms and affirms this theme. So, Isaiah, if you will stand with me, we're going to read Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or the peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Would you pray with me? God, as we open up the scriptures and as we meditate on the truth we find therein, we ask that you would open up the eyes of our heart, that we would be enlightened, not just to understand uh, the, the, the information and the facts, but that we would be given a spirit of revelation so that the spirit would speak to us through the written word, spirit to spirit. And so that that revelation would captivate us in the depths of who we are and that we would leave here with a vision to embodying the message of the abundant grace of the kingdom of God in renewed ways. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. So we are familiar, of course, we will, uh, particularly with the titles for the Messiah that are given in this 
verse, wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, and prince of peace. What, what I want to do this morning, though, is, is highlight one phrase in that passage that may or may not have been one in which that has been highlighted uh, to you before, but it's verse 7. In verse 7, we'll be, we're, we're told there will be no end to the increase of his government. Now, there's something subtle in that phrase that I want us to take just a moment to sit with. When I read that sentence, when I read that phrase, my first inclination is to actually, you know, this is what we do. We come to text with certain glasses on, and by the time the words go from the page through our eyes into our minds, we've already altered the message just a little bit. And, and so when I read a phrase like this, what I read it as, and to his government, there will be no end. In other words, that his government will go on and extend forevermore, which of course, that in and of itself is enough of a promise on which to anchor our hope. But that's not what it says. It says, to the increase, there will be no end. That it is always growing and alive and reproducing life. There's a perpetuation of the grace and mercy and generosity of the kingdom that continues to extend and grow throughout one generation to the next. It's not just that his government will remain forever, but that the increase of his government will perpetuate which I really like that idea because those of us who's walk, who's, who have given ourselves to walking the way of Christ over several years, perhaps even decades, perhaps even over a lifetime, I think that we would bear witness to the nature, the increasing nature of the kingdom of God. It is not just a singular crisis event that we hang our spiritual identity on, some, some conversion event that may have happened when we were children, but rather, we bear witness to the kingdom because presently right now within our own souls it is continuing to increase and to expand it means that the sense of childlike awe wonder and adventure with which we posture ourselves in the way of Jesus is something that will never go away because there is always a frontier to explore. There is always adventure awaiting us because there's this perpetual increase that we are invited to participate in. And if we look at the Hebrew word, which of course I don't pretend to have any background in Hebrew. I took a class that taught me how to fumble my way through books and lo and behold, eventually woke up one day and I no longer needed the books because I could just Google all the Hebrew information that I might need. And so when we look at this word that gets translated, uh, that's translated by the phrase to the increase, th th this word simply means abundance. And sometimes, particularly during the holiday seasons, for some of us, these are seasons of joy. And it's not that there aren't bumps in the road. It's not that I, I don't enter into this season knowing that at some point I will sit around tables where other people ought to be, 
where I'm used to other people being and they're no longer there. And, and, and I understand there may be some extended time that um, my family gets to spend with me and some of them may find that undesirable. And so I, I, get, I understand that. I, I have to put up with me more than anyone else. So I have a lot of grace for that. So I know that there are points of tension, maybe even grief, but I'm also a romantic. I love walking into the church and seeing the trees and the lights and the stars. I love the music, the songs that we're singing. I like the extra packet of hot chocolate I add to the mugs during December. And, um, but one of the things I've noticed is when we have these conversations with the anxiety that it can create, there's, there's financial pressures, there's time pressures, there's expectation pressures. And, and when we engage in uh, a, a perpetual sense of that kind of anxious atmosphere, it can begin to obscure our vision, which then robs us of our joy. And one of the things that can get obscured during the pressure of the holidays and in the way in which commercialization crisscrosses with an act of worship and the complications that it can bring is that we begin to lose our focus about the nature of the kingdom of God, which is not scarcity. The nature of the kingdom of God is abundance. An abundance of generosity, an abundance of provision, an abundance of mercy, an abundance of wisdom. There are all these words that we can say in reference to it, or even as the scripture celebrates that there's an abundance of justice and righteousness. But I think that an umbrella word that captures all of these aspects of the kingdom of God is that the kingdom of God is characterized by an abundance of grace. And if we are following Jesus and we are willing to be stewards of our mind and our heart and our body so that we are find ourselves in a healthy mental state as well, then the characterization atmosphere of our inner life ought to be one, not of scarcity and anxiety, but of abundance and generosity. Because that is the heart of the nature of the kingdom of God and the way of Jesus. To the increase is the word that simply means abundance, an abundance of grace. So one of the themes that is often talked about during Advent is the theme of hope. So what is hope? Hope is an anticipated, anticipated future that transforms and empowers us in the present. That's what hope is. It's future-oriented. It is an anticipation of the future that transforms and empowers us in the present. The grounding, we have a unique grounding in our hope, though, as followers of Jesus and those seeking to align themselves to the rhythms of the kingdom of God. The ground of our hope is in the promised increase of his government of peace. Our anticipated future is in an increase of the abundance of his grace that empowers us to live in union with God and to work toward the increase of his kingdom. And even if this season for you 
creates a rhythm of reflection to where you start looking back on the previous year and taking a moment to, to, to express gratitude for what made this year such a blessing or what made this year so great. But at the same time, you also mourn the losses of this year and you acknowledge maybe some pain that you're carrying with you from 2023 into 2024 that you didn't have at the top of 2023. And as that leads you then to reflect on where, what would I have done different if I had the knowledge of December 2023 with me in January of 2023. It's an appropriate time to stop and to reflect and think about those questions, but at the same time, it's also proper to position yourself in thinking through the vision for your life that God may have for you in 2024. Looking at the 12, next 12 months on that calendar and begin to work in some space where you allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you, to inspire you, to lead you, to guide you, to help fashion what that might possibly look like so that you can be an active contributor to your story. And as you do, I think it is wise for us to pause and remind ourselves the nature of of the rhythm of the kingdom of God is characterized by abundance. And this word is used quite frequently throughout the scripture. Let's do a brief survey of a few New Testament passages. In the kingdom of God, there will always be an increasing abundance of grace. Which, by the way, for time's sake, I didn't put every single one of them in here. So let's start with, with, with a fun one, Ephesians 1, 6 through 7. Ephesians 1, 6 through 7. Paul writes, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. So let's take a look at a few words that are translated lavished and richly poured out. Lavished is the word that simply means to make graceful or to endow with grace. What does it mean to be in Christ? It means you are one who has been endowed with grace. You have not just been a recipient of grace, but the end game there isn't simply for you to be a placeholder for grace, but to be one who is transformed by that very same grace so that you're not just a recipient of grace, you're one who has been empowered to become grace full. And when we embrace our identity, our calling to be graceful, that's when we begin to tap into the inner strength and reservoir to accomplish the mission that we've been given, which in part is to be the body of Christ in our community and beyond. 
That happens not because we discipline ourselves to accomplish the mission, but because we attend to the reality of our inner life and we make certain that we're not just uh, people who speak of grace, but we are those who are endowed with grace so that we are impacted and transformed by it ourselves. This is what it means to be lavished with grace. Then verse 8 the reference is made that he richly poured out grace upon us. And this word richly poured out means to be over and above, to abound. There's a phrase that is used that I see it in Facebook memes or I hear it in some wisdom literatures. And I'm sure that on the lips of different teachers and in different contexts, it means different things. Uh, But in general, I understand and I appreciate the sentiment, and it's to be reminded that you are enough. But the truth of the matter is, that is only a partial truth for those of us who were aligning with the rhythm of the kingdom of God. The truth is, you are more than enough. Because of the generosity of God, it's not just a drip of grace for your time of need. You have been lavished with grace and mercy and kindness to the point that your cup overflows, to the point that you are abounding in grace. That's why the grace that we share is not a discipline or a work. It is an overflow and a fruit of a life that is rooted in the recognition and awareness that they have become endowed with grace because God has chosen to not just share it with you, but to lavish it upon you. So the grace we experience is one that causes us not just to be enough, but literally within you, there is more than enough. There's more than you need. That might just because it reveals the generous, generous nature of God, but maybe you have more that you need so that then you become a you become a means of grace to those around you. You have more than enough for yourself and to offer those who may have need around you. Let's go up one more chapter, Ephesians 2, 6 through 7. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Again, this word immeasurable This word immeasurable is the word huperbolo, and it means, once again, to throw over and beyond, to run beyond. In other words, it's not just grace that meets us in our need for healing or restoration. It's grace that goes over and above our restoration to empower us to those, uh, to, to empower us to move from being those who are healed to being the healers. Which is why, which is why peacemakers will be called children of the Father. And so the grace extended to us is not minuscule, nor is it just to meet our need, nor is it just enough to be enough. God is hyper in the lavishing of the grace he puts upon us. He goes above and beyond. And then once again, this word... Um, 
this word that's translated um, riches. Verse 7, it says that he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace. Again, I think riches speaks to something non-material because it's there to modify the idea of grace. But that word riches means, does mean wealth. But look at the definitions of its usage. Riches, wealth, what's the third word there? An abundance. Abundance, materially or spiritually. So once again, what we see is that part of our identity is to be those through whom the kindness of God is on display because we have been recipients of an abundance of grace. We sit here this morning and some of us may be tired, some of us may be angry, some of us might might be wounded, and we need to process those realities and work through that, but know that as you do, there's not just grace to process the darkness of your soul in this moment. There is an abundance of grace to process that darkness, to live with it, to sit with it, to walk through it, to allow its wisdom that again speak to our hearts and then to come through on the other side, not just healed people, but people who are wiser and more humble and more skillful at the art of mercy. Because in our darkness, we sit with an abundance of grace that bathes us and washes over us. Ephesians, again, once again, Ephesians 3 verse 20. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. And again, I don't want to be insensitive. I know that some of us sit here this morning wondering if there's even any effect of prayer. We would just like to get back to the place with a little authenticity, we can bow the knee and make the request. But we're stuck in a place that even if we're willing to do that, it feels like hypocrisy because our hearts have abandoned that hope a long time ago. And I'm saying the response isn't just a practice of prayer. It is sitting in the presence of God, engaging in prolonged meditation on the truth of the scripture in the presence of the Holy Spirit to where we're not just restored with a confidence to bow the knee and make the request, but that we recognize whatever request we make, we're making it to a God who can do that and much more according to his wisdom and his good intent to conform you to the image of his son. He is not a stingy God that has to be convinced to be good to us. Mostly we have to change our view of him to actually have the faith to rest in and believe in his goodness. But he is a God who not only responds, but he has the power to go over and above and beyond. Again, this word translated above and beyond is the word hooper, which you might see the, uh, the, word, uh, the English word hyper in there, because it means to go over and beyond, figuratively, on behalf of, or for the sake of. It's a preposition that simply means hyper. To extend benefit, that reaches beyond the present situation, which is really important because when we think about our spiritual life, if we're still stuck in a mindset that religion and spirituality is for 
the purposes of control, then all we're concerned with is getting some bailout in the 11th hour in whatever circumstance we've created for ourselves or that we find ourselves in. But as we mature beyond the deception that religion and spirituality is about control, and we begin to open up to the possibility that it is about surrender, that a healthy, Jesus-centered spirituality does not increase our sense of control, but it does increase the grace to surrender to what is. And as we occupy that space, then we're able to recognize that prayer is not about fixing our situation. It is about sitting with the presence of the divine so the divine transforms our human experience. And that we recognize that that prayer, that circumstance, whatever it was that drove us before God's throne of grace is intended for much more than just a temporary success story on our circumstance. It's intended to go above and beyond, to extend beyond the circumstance, so that we begin to see the wisdom in some of the other uh, scriptural admonitions, like consider it joy when you encounter trials. Because what is happening in that process isn't that God stands above them and tells us what to do or he fixes it for us. No, God comes and dwells with us in the midst of our suffering. He doesn't stand above it and give instructions. He sits and he suffers with us. And he invites us into a space that goes beyond fixing our present circumstance to allowing everything to work together for our good. That we begin to recognize we do not inhabit a universe of antagonism because even the antagonistic realities of our life have to submit to the promise that God will cause all things to work together for the good of those who are called by him to be conformed to the image of his son. And all of it passes through that reality so that what we experience in the grace of prayer extends beyond just the present situation. Once again, John 10.10, the words of Jesus. A thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. Properly, it means all around or more than. It means beyond what is anticipated, exceeding expectation, more abundant, going past the expected limit. Another usage is that phrase again, more than enough. That life happens as we participate in the life of Christ within. The reason why we align ourselves to the rhythms of the kingdom of God. How did Eugene Peterson, God rest his joyful soul, translate it? We participate in the unforced rhythms of grace. And as we participate in the unforced rhythms of grace, we step into a whole new way of existing because we recognize we're not trying to offer sacrifices to a deity deity, so that he will then return good fate and fortune upon our lives. We're doing something that goes well beyond that. 
We are participating in the life of God. We are participating in the dance of the divine. Just this morning, we were doing, we, we were reciting the liturgy together. And one of the things that we did this morning to change it up is that we, we pulled from some, some more of the, uh, of the liturgical prayers from the Eastern Orthodox tradition. And just at the end of a prayer time, the whole had a different feel to it. And we began to discuss that. And one of the things that I, one of the reasons why I love to pull from the liturgy of the Greek, of, of the Orthodox tradition is it is so unapologetically Trinitarian. It, it is a constant refrain of acknowledging the beauty of the inner community of the divine, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so we recognize we're invited into that community so that we can be transformed by it and so that we can be extensions of it in the world as we inhabit this space as the body of Christ. And we do this because we experience abundance even in the midst of loss and grief and suffering. There is still a reality of the abundance of grace and that's Advent, because Advent is the anticipation of God with us. But what we know is this, the story of our faith begins with God with us, but it ends where? Christ in you. So then you become God with us to our community and beyond. This is the invitation. This is what it means to participate in the faith of Christ. So I want to close with this one idea. Abundance flows from an awareness of your union with God through Christ in you. It's one thing to talk about these ideas and concepts but what's really hard is if you're sitting and listening to someone read these scriptures, talk about uh, these definitions, but then still feel completely alienated in your heart because that's not your, true to your experience today. Maybe it hasn't been true to your experience in this season. Maybe it hasn't been true to your experience in this past year. So what do we do about that? Where's the first step? I'm not trying to speak definitively. I'm not, I didn't, fast for 40 days and climb up a mountain and get stone tablets to say, here's the answer. All I can do is, as a brother who's walking this path, maybe alongside you, maybe behind you, or maybe a little ahead of you, depending on how long you're walking it, what I can say is, this is what has transformed me. It's why I went from being very zealous and legalistic about quiet time to moving through a season where I rarely had any to now that conviction becoming reimagined and coming back with a vengeance in this season of my life. I will not compromise time to meditate because it has been such a powerful transformative tool in my own life in this season. And there are many things, many ideas I engage with in that time, but one of those is regular meditation on Christ in me, the hope of glory. Trying to re regularly, even in some awkward way, with spatial language and spatial imagery, imagine what that means. 
as though Christ peeled back my rib cage and stepped into my chest. And, and sit with that reality. So, because that abundance won't come through circumstance. I'm sure many of us can make a case for why that seems absent in our life in this particular season. And I'm happy to sit with those stories. I'm happy to be one of the people that sit on the ash heap and weep with you. But eventually, after processing the story, we get around to asking the question, now what? And what I would suggest is we entertain the thought that abundance flows from an awareness of your union with God through Christ in you. It's not enough to acknowledge these realities. Do you live from an awareness of that reality? Listen to the way Jesus describes what life with God should be like. He is our model. We are invited to participate in the exact same childlike faith that he committed his life to to the very end. How did he describe it? When John 5, he says it this way. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord. Now, now that's a really remarkable idea, especially in the way that we distance the humanity of Jesus from our humanity. This is a good verse to challenge that temptation to do that. And again, notice how it's preceded, not with just truly, but this double emphasis. He knows he's about to say something that's not going to be simple for them to just accept. So he gives the double emphasis. It's not just truly, as if that even needed to be said by Christ. But he says, truly, truly. I mean it here, guys. What I'm about to say is the actual truth, even though you want to try to make it a metaphor or theologize it in such a way that it has no practical meaning for your lives. Don't do that, because what I'm telling you is the truth. The son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. Can you imagine what your life might be like if you incorporated regular times of quiet and deep soul work, where you simply entertain the question, Father, show me what you're doing. Not fix it for me, not give me the answer. Father, show me what you're doing. Make the vision clear. Not so I can talk about it, but so that I can reflect it. So that I can do what you are doing. Now this becomes so important because as we see in the narrative of the life of Christ, oftentimes the father is doing something that religion says he cannot do. It's put boundaries on the abundance of his grace, for example, on the superabundance of his mercy. So religion will give us a different answer to that question. So we don't go to our religion, we go to our Father. We listen to the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. We learn to keep in step with the Spirit. And we take our cue, 
not from our various systems of beliefs, but from the model of our Savior. And if Jesus says, I can't do anything unless I see the Father doing it, maybe that's true for us as well. Maybe that's why there is a wisdom of silence that many of us know not of. Because we've got to invite it into our lives. That silence that allows us to hear the whisper of the Spirit. Let's continue. He says, The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Now, now verse 20 is so fascinating because I grew up in a, a tradition that would have said, if you're asking, why does the Father do this? Then the proper answer from the Bible will always be to glorify himself, which is fine. I, I don't have a problem with that answer, except for in the way it eventually gets nuanced and dusty in our minds. And what is interesting here is what is the motive? Is the motive for God to do a thing? Is the motive for God to give Jesus a mission and give him something to do with his life? You know, because we have to feel existentially, existentially significant all the time now in our generation. Our jobs have to be the greatest you know, job humanitarian, but also makes us lots of money. Uh, our marriages have to be stellar to where all our needs are met by this one individual. I mean, we, we, we go through these assumptions and we need significance and vision and work. But what is the motive for the father sharing what he's doing with the son? Verse 20, I'm not gonna tell you. Get down there and take a look. It's in your notes. What's the motive? What's the answer to why? Let me make sure I'm referencing the right reference here, verse 20. Yeah. It's the fourth word in the sentence. Why does the father share what he's doing with the son? Because he loves the son. Your relationship with God might be the only place where you are not a utility or a commodity. He doesn't need you to get his work done. He partners with you to get his work done because he loves you. That's the motive of God. He has set his love on you and he wants to do his life in the world with you. And so that's what we're seeing. That's what we see. It's what Jesus modeled. I do what the Father's doing, and the Father shares it with me because he loves me. He even goes so bold in John 10 to say it this way, I and the Father are one. Do you understand that being in Christ means that this is supposed to be the normal experience of your own life? Your own sensitivity mean, I mean, your own experience means that you are sensitive to the reality that your life is an overflow of the captivating truth that you and the Father are one. This is what incarnation points to. It's what it's all about. 
John 15, four through five, Jesus says this to his followers, abide in me and I in you. In other words, you abide in me, I abide in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The work is not to bear the fruit. The work is simply to abide. It is to align, to participate with the unforced rhythms of grace of the kingdom of God. And in doing so, fruit gets born through you. Now, I'm trying to grow up, but how can I leave that verse without encapsulating it with the exhortation that the dude abides? Thank you for the four of you. (laughs) That is the calling though, isn't it? To abide. That is your work, is to abide. Your work isn't to fight the things that prevent you from abiding. Your work is to abide. And then the rhythms of grace take care of the things that we're so anxious about and we read so many books about and we purchase so many systems from social influencers about. The Spirit takes care of that. The call of the follower of Jesus is not primarily to connect with an ideology, but to connect with a person, with a being, and allow your being to be wrapped up in that being as well. So now we are a people that know how to be present as the body of Christ, not the megaphone of Christ, not the sales rep representing his ideology, but we're actually being Christ in our community and beyond. So as the worship team comes forward to help lead us in our time in communion. Before you stand, I want you to just take a few minutes. Set your papers, your devices, your Bibles aside for just a second. Rest a little bit comfortably. Some of you have been way too comfortable during this sermon, and I've seen the two of you, by the way. But that's okay. That's maybe what you needed. Sometimes I'm a good sleep time story. But I do want you to relax. Take a deep breath. Heck, take three. Let's be Trinitarian. Take one for the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Gently close your eyes. let's just make this space sacred. Make it a sanctuary. Quiet your heart. Let the demands of life or the lunch plans just float away for a second. And however you want to envision it, take a moment to draw near to the throne of grace. Whether you envision it 
externally as some sort of heavenly courtroom scene. Maybe your imagery is informed by others, other court scenes you've seen in movies or in person. Or maybe you envision it as a throne room that's perpetually existing in your own heart. But draw near and rest for just a moment with these three questions. Ask first of all yourself, where do you need an abundance of grace in your own heart, in your mind, in your will, in your emotions? Where is that need? Is it a wound? Is it an idea that you're experiencing to be very toxic in your own health and posture? Is it still that same old besetting shameful struggle that you rarely mention anymore? You just live with it. In your heart, ask the Father for the grace to engage with this struggle and come out on the other side free. Second thought. Where do you need an abundance of grace in either your home or in your friendships or your relationships? Maybe a toxic network through work or through some other social connection. Maybe toxic in your home. Maybe you've become the source of toxicity in your home. Where do you need it? Take a moment to ask the Father for the grace to apply directly as a bomb to that situation. B-A-L-M, not B-O-M-B. To bring healing. And then finally, as we move from need to an outward posture of service, ask your father, how are you calling me to be a source of abundant grace in my community and beyond? Ask him just for a few seconds. If he shared with you what he's doing, it's because he loves you. But it's also an invitation for you to enjoy participating in the dance of redemption and restoration. So as you sit with those questions and ponder those responses, quietly stand as we get ready to come forward and take communion together. You can come through from the back to the front, across the lines, and then you can go back to your seat or if you want to kneel here at the altar or if you just want to find a quiet place in the sanctuary, to pray and take communion, you do that however you feel.